Listener Production. Are you tired of not getting what you want in life? I used to feel the same until I learnt the techniques of manifestation. Let me take you through step by step how I manifest so you can start living the life you had always dreamt for yourself. All the info on my Manifest Your Greatness course is in this episode's show notes or you can go to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Tracy Spicer is a Walkley award-winning journalist and activist. In 2018, Tracy was chosen as one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. A career working at some of Australia's biggest TV stations saw Tracy treated unfairly for her age and sex, which led to her campaign for female equality. My conversation with Tracy today covers so much. Her recent research into artificial intelligence and the biases that exist within this technology, emerging from humble socioeconomic beginnings to making her dreams become reality and the importance of standing up for what you believe in, even when it comes at a cost. They were trying to get rid of me when I gave birth to my first child by replacing me with younger presenters, even though I was only in my late 30s at that stage. That was an era where TV newsreaders, if you were female, you were sexualised. And once you started to have children, it was like, hang on, you're not seen as a sex object anymore, let's get rid of you, you're just a tired old mum. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is a life of greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Tracy Spicer is the author of many books, including The Good Girl Strip Bear and her newest book, Man Made, How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into Our Future. This conversation is in equal parts fun and profound. When looking at artificial intelligence, Tracy says, what's the point in changing the present if bigotry is being embedded into our futures? I hope this conversation with Tracy serves as a shining example of what can be achieved when the fervour of passion and unwavering faith merge with a dedicated commitment to improving the shared, smaller world we inhibit. Tracy, you are a very accomplished journalist and you've done so much in your time, but I want to know what drew you to the media? That is a very generous statement and I appreciate you having me on. Look, I grew up in a very low socioeconomic area, but my mum and dad were wonderful. They said to my sister and I, you can do anything. The world is your oyster. And it's wonderful to be brought up in that Mm. environment because it doesn't limit your aspirations. My dad used to sit down at six o'clock every night and watch the news. And we all had to be silent because it was important to know what's going on in the world. And I think that was a great gift. So I grew up with a love for the media. 
also I saw Yarn Event on television mm. one day, one of the very early news and current affairs hosts in this country. And because I grew up in such a rough area, as soon as I saw her on television, I thought, I want to be her. And I don't think I only wanted to be a journalist or a news and current affairs host. I wanted to be a slight, glamorous, dark-haired woman of Eastern European ancestry because she seems so much more fabulous than being the bleached head bogan chick from Deadcliffe, which is where <laughs> I was living at the time. So I guess that story exemplifies you can't be what you can't see, mm. but also you need those role models out there. Women, you know, at the time she was reporting from the Middle East when there yes. was conflict there, and seeing that as a child in the 70s was incredible to think that women could do that, women can do anything. Mm. I actually grew up watching 60 Minutes ironically, also looking at these sort of people thinking, that's what I want to do. I was so inspired by them sitting down and having longer form conversations with people, which is ironic because I've gotten into podcasting. But there was something about talking about subject matters that were important and really bringing them to light to maybe an audience that did not know about them that I thought to me was really deep and moving and inspiring. Definitely. And these were the days before globalisation mm. and Australia was very insular. And if you grew up in the suburbs like I did, there didn't seem to be much that was different, right? So to see people bringing international news into your lounge room was tremendously exciting. And to dig a bit deeper on those issues as well and to see that as a teenager when you you grow up, I've got two teenagers now, when you're younger, you believe what your parents say, you don't think too much past that. And to see my two teenagers thinking outside the box now and Mm. challenging our ideas, that's what happened to me when I watched 60 Minutes. It sounds like it happened to you as well. And having that global thinking is priceless. Yes. And how did you then get into media? I did a journalism degree at the Queensland Institute of Technology back in the day. Uh, First person in my family to go to university. Really grateful at the time that university was free, you know, because if we had to pay for it, I don't know whether I would have gone to uni. So that that small pocket in Australia's history where you could go to uni for free, I think, lifted so many up. (laughs) I know, right? It was a short period of time. Gough Whitlam brought it in back in the 1970s and then it was rescinded and Hex was brought in in the 1980s. the hex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I loved going to uni. After finishing uni, I was unemployed for six months because I graduated at the time of the Black October stock market crash in 1987. The month I graduated, the whole economy went down the toilet. And so I did various, very strange jobs. I sold chicken rolls in pubs with a sash that said hot chick. That was (laughs) rather edifying. I... um, what else did I do? I, I tutored in maths. I did a whole bunch of part-time jobs working at a shoe shop cobbled together to make ends meet. And that gave me a real value for, you know, for money, for having a job and for security. Because yes. when you're unemployed for a period of time, and certainly I was living at home and I was grateful to have my parents to support me, but it does give you a little bit of a fright when you think, oh my goodness, I've done this study and now I've got nothing to go to. Yes. And then I got my first job at a small radio station in Brisbane and it went from there. And tell me, how did you then go into working at Channel 9, which obviously is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, free-to-air station? How did that come about? And that must have felt like such an accomplishment. It was a classic story, and you would know this with 
the media more broadly and particularly radio. A lot yes. of radio people, this uh, this happens to. You travel around a lot and you learn the business from the ground up. Mm. So I worked at a radio station in Brisbane, then radio station in Melbourne, 3AW, and then out to country television doing sheep, cow stories in Taralgon in Gippsland and then Channel 9 <laughs> in Melbourne after that, which was, I guess, at the time my big break, but also my first real experience of sexual harassment in the workplace. It was absolutely rife there. Mm. In fact, the boss called out to one of my colleagues one day in front of the whole newsroom, 80 people, I want two inches off your hair and two inches off your ass." Mm. So it was really, it made you tough, made you put the armour on. But when, when viewed through today's lens, it was just a shocking, toxic workplace. What year was that? Oh, late 1980s, yeah. maybe? 1990, I think. Yes. I wasn't working then, but I've heard stories of just different <laughs> workplaces. It is unbelievable to think those kind of things were happening everywhere. I've heard so many crazy stories thinking, how the hell was that allowed? I mean, it would hopefully never be allowed today. We just unfortunately smiled and nod and went on with it. Yeah, that's right, you know, and I think in today's parlance we internalise the misogyny, but I think it's more than that. It was almost like it was the wallpaper surrounding us. Mm. And when you see it everywhere, for example, when I was working in country television, I said to the boss one day, do you think I'll ever make it in the city like my hero, Yarn Event? He said, oh, you're a good bird, Trace, I'll give it to you straight. You'll never make it in the city. I said, why? He said, because you're a blonde and people think blondes are stupid. <laughs> And I tell this story to my teenagers these days and they go, Mum, that didn't happen. I'm like, yes, that did happen. So because you are constantly belittled for your intellect, treated as if you're only valued for your appearance, groped and grabbed and, of course, even more serious instances, it became normalised. And so you thought, well, this is just the way the workplace is and I better just put up with it. I eventually pushed back, but, gee, it takes a long time to be able to get the confidence to do that. So when you say groped or grabbed, what do you mean? Oh, literally groped or grabbed if you're at Christmas parties or things like that and you're expected just to put up with it. For example, I was at a Christmas party at Channel 10 in Sydney by the time I, I got a job there and someone grabbed me on the bum and I turned around to slap them across the face. I've built up a bit of confidence by that yeah. stage. And it was the highest, most powerful person in the network who did it. And my hand slowly dropped to my side. And I thought, how can I protest about this? How can I push back? How can I complain about it? This is the most powerful person in the network. And I am a, a young woman in my early 30s. So I understand, you know, when mm. the young women I mentor say, look, this happened, what can I do, what can I say, that power imbalance is so huge. power imbalance. That's it. And we've yeah. got more protections these days, regulation, legislation, a different culture, really yeah. cultural change in society. But that power imbalance is still there and that's tricky to navigate. It's so true. I remember the first job in the field that I'd studied, which was public relations, I'd just come out of uni and I was so excited about this job because I was like, oh my God, I got this job and they were looking after some big companies that I was excited about. And the lady that ran it, she just would abuse me 
I was the junior publicist and there was her PA and we both started around the same time. And there was only four people that worked there, us and two senior publicists. And literally she would just abuse us all day. But this was my first proper job. So she'd say, you're an idiot. Why did you do this? Don't you have a clue? That's how she spoke. And then one day I came home, I was still living with my family and I started crying to my mum. I thought that's what the workplace was. I had no idea that that's not how you were supposed to be treated. And I just thought, I'm not made out for working. I don't know if I can take this. That's terrible. It's terrible. Like in hindsight, it's so terrible. But if you don't know any better, you think, well, what do I do? And you kind of do nothing because you're young and you're just so grateful to get a job. And look, I didn't last long there. But looking back, I just can't believe that people would ever be like that. I'm so sorry that happened to you. That is a terrible experience. As a young person, because you're right, it taints your view of the workplace. It gives you a fright and it's quite traumatising when you Mm. go into subsequent jobs because you think, okay, who's going to be bullying me here? You just think this is the normal thing that happens in workplaces. Yeah. And I remember they said, they're like, oh, she's just a bully. She's known for that. There's nothing we can really do. It was a bizarre situation. But what I'd like to know from what happened with you is how did that affect your self-esteem? I started to view myself, and I know a lot of women in certain industries, particularly the media, uh, start to view themselves like this as well, as purely valued for how I looked. Mm. And I was never like that when I was a kid. You know, we had great parents who never, ever talked about how we looked. It's just do what makes you happy. And that sort of builds and builds and builds until you start to think, well, maybe I don't really have a brain after all. Maybe I am a dumb blonde. And I think I've struggled with that my whole life. It's taken me until I've written two books to think, oh, dear, maybe I am smart. I can write books. You know, you do things to try to prove it to yourself your whole lifetime, which sounds really weird, but you do internalise what's said to you when you're a teenager and a young woman. Absolutely. And I wonder... Now, if you have gone to therapy or you have practices that you use that reinforces the fact that you're not? I do. And I teach some of these practices now because I do a bit of uh, presentation training and I say to people before they present, we all fear presenting. From a social anthropological perspective, we fear the audience is going to judge us. Ergo, an opposing tribe is coming to attack us. So we make ourselves smaller. So the way to get past that is to do some really deep diaphragmatic breathing, to have some mantras that replace the negative self-talk with the positive self-talk. So my negative self talk is, you're a dumb blonde from Brisbane, what would you know about this? You're just stupid. I replace that with, you're an expert in this space, you've done your practice and your rehearsals, your message will help people. Mm. And then I do something physical, you know, sort of stand up in a power pose just to make myself feel a little bit more confident before going on stage. And that's what I teach to people now because we all have negative self-talk, whether it's around bullying or sexual harassment or something that happened in our childhood. And you've got to have strategies to be able to stop that voice in your head and replace it with another voice. That's so good. And then you ended up losing your job. Was it when you were on maternity leave? Yes, it was a couple of weeks after I'd returned from maternity leave. Yes, you just returned from maternity leave. So what happened? 
What happened was when I gave birth to my first child, I had a serious complication called complete placenta previa. It used oh, yes. to kill women before the advent of the cesarean section. I tried to come back after giving birth to Taj, but I was told in no uncertain terms by the boss that you've been away for too long, the audience has forgotten you, we've replaced you with some younger presenters, you know, the whole story. And so I pushed back and I said, what you are saying is illegal and immoral and I will take you to court, which sounds really cool saying now, but I was so nervous. My hands were shaking. I went up to Human Resources. I told them what had happened and incredibly... My boss was sidelined and later sacked and I was brought back to my old job. Oh, wow. So that happened with my first child and it taught me it's always worth standing up for yourself and fighting the good fight because the more you stand up for yourself, it's like building up a muscle at the gym. You become stronger and stronger and stronger. But as everyone knows who stood up for themselves in the workplace, you can get a black mark against your name and that's what happened to me. They put me on shifts hoping I'd resign, finishing at midnight a Sunday night and starting at 7 on a Monday morning. But and you I'm, had a little children. That's oh right, gosh. when we had a little baby. But look, I, I'm really pig-headed. I'm a pig-headed bogan. So I found a friend who lived around the corner from the network. I slept in her spare room every Sunday night. My beautiful husband drove in our baby boy so I could breastfeed him every four hours. Oh, my God. A lot of the breastfeeding happened in the hair and makeup department. To this day, my son becomes ravenous when he hears the sound of a blow dryer, <laughs> some kind of Pavlovian thing. Wow. <laughs> and while that was happening, I became pregnant with our second child, Grace, the wonderful feisty grace. But yes, when I came back to work three weeks after maternity leave from grace. um, Three weeks? Yeah. Well, the old thing, the old phrase used to be the TV two weeks because there was never maternity leave. So we would all take holidays or long service leave. And and we're so fortunate now, right, to have maternity leave and paternity leave. It just makes the world of difference. But so I had three weeks, which is a long time for television to have off. But of course, I was exhausted and everything. But in any case, three weeks after I came back, I got an email from the boss sitting on the other side of the room to tell me my services were no longer required. So why did they make that decision? It was never said uh, overtly, but it was clear that... They were trying to get rid of me when I gave birth to my first child by replacing me with younger presenters, even though I was only in my late 30s at that stage. That was an era where TV newsreaders, if you were female, you were sexualised. And once you started to have children, it was like, hang on, you're not seen as a sex object anymore. Let's get rid of you. You're just a tired old mum. Nowadays, it's actually quite the opposite. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that's what the research shows. Oh, not now. But this was, how many years ago was this? 17 years ago. Because now they realise that, you know, when you show that you've got a family, you show a different side of your personality, there's stories in magazines which draws eyeballs to the news service, so it's really symbiotic. But at that time, if you worked in the media as a woman prior to that time, you had to choose between a career and having children. And then in my time, you would try to do it, but it would be incredibly hard and the networks would try to get rid of you to get someone younger and sexier. Did you love that job when you were actually on air? Yes, and I was thinking about that the other day. I I loved it for a lot of reasons. One was I'm passionate about news Mm. and I think it's important to live in a democracy and for people to be well-informed. I also loved it because when you're in a studio, it's a beautiful, calm, usually, zen space where you're in the moment. It's live television. 
You've got to be in the moment. You can't be thinking about what you're having for dinner or what you had for breakfast. And it's lovely to have a job where you've got that flow, where you've done it for a while and you feel really comfortable. So I loved it for that reason. I also loved working with a team because mm. television is a really team thing. Everyone's got their role and if they do it, it goes to where well. If someone doesn't, it all falls apart live. <laughs> so it was exciting, but it was also calming. Having said that, I get that feeling now from writing. So yes. I think there's different things you do at different stages of your life. What was the favourite news story for you that you've covered in your life? Oh, the, absolutely my favourites were travelling to developing countries to do documentaries on women and girls. Mm, yeah. I had the great privilege of going to India and to Bangladesh to do stories on gender side, where mm. in India they kill the girl babies because they're not valued like the boy babies are, to go to Bangladesh and do stories on schools for girls nine hours out of the capital, Dakar. I mean, those kind of stories absolutely break your heart, mm. but then make your heart swell again because I did them with uh, not-for-profits like ActionAid and World Vision who were doing incredible work in those areas. And to see that um, humanity, you know, communities come together to lift up people after the floods in Bangladesh, for, in for instance, is incredible. I think... The story that moved me the most, though, was in Uganda. Mm. I went there to do a story on a domestic violence shelter three hours out of the capital. And a woman came to that same shelter three years earlier. Her name was Jennifer, with the worst story I have ever heard. Um, look, I, I will share it with her permission. Yeah. She was a survivor of domestic violence. Her husband on their farm made her breastfeed the puppies her milk dried up and her baby died. It is the worst story I have ever heard. Oh, my God. It's horrific. So Jennifer came up to the Women's Refuge where we were filming this documentary uh, about ActionAid, which is doing wonderful work there. She told the women of ActionAid her story. The women of ActionAid stormed into the Ugandan parliament. And at that time, the Ugandan parliament had a higher percentage of women than the Australian parliament. And the women legislators walked out of parliament and said, we're not coming back until you blokes agree to a law against domestic violence, which at that point in time affected 80% of the women in that country. So a law against domestic yes. violence was brought in. Jennifer was removed from that dangerous situation and put up in a property because at that time women couldn't inherit properties, only sons could. So ActionAid put her up in a property, got her a sewing machine, she built her home business with her remaining children and that one woman in rural Uganda changed the course of her country's oh, history. That's beautiful. I think it's the most incredible story I've ever wow. heard about leadership, you yeah. know? Yeah. Stories like that are so meaningful and sometimes when we're looking at the nightly news, it's quite robotic. I'll never forget, though, watching this and feeling like, wow, the presenter has a heart. And I don't mean to say that in a mean way, but because they can't really show that much emotion, even though they're dealing with some heavy content. When it was a Black Saturday fires and Brian Naylor ended up dying and the poor newsreader at the time he, Peter Hitchner, Peter Hitchner, had to read yeah. the news and they were good friends. And it was the first time where I thought he was like hiding tears and it was so moving. And I thought that's the reality. Like it's, he has to talk about his good friend that has just died in a fire. Like how shocking is that? And mm. it's, it also reminds me a bit of 
different situation, but you remember again on 60 Minutes where they tried to get this woman to get her kids from somewhere in the Middle East and oh, they'd been yes. emailing and they the husband who had taken the kids saw the emails, so they ended up all being put in prison and it was these presenters from 60 Minutes that ended up being put in prison and, you know, thank God they all got out. Mm. But who knew if they were going to get out? Mm. And you really see the news become real and how you guys have such an important job and how things can go sour at any moment. I think it's a really positive change, actually, that's happened in the media going yeah. from that robotic style of presenting where people pretended they didn't have emotions, almost, yeah, like an, uh, an automaton. Yes, so it's good to see the humanity and the personalities. Absolutely. I worry that at some stage it might go too far. There's this whole thing of, you know, journalist as star that people are pushing back and saying, no, 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 we want to hear the stories. But at the end of the day, if you have a, a public presence, people want to know more about you. People mm. want to know what moves you. And that gives a heart-to-heart connection at the time when we're moving into the era of robots. Mm. So I think it's a very good thing to see that human emotion. It creates a greater connection with the audience. Tracy, you've got your beautiful new book out. And I wanted to talk a bit about it because it's to do with AI. And that sounds so random. <laughs> How did you come about writing a book on AI? <laughs> it does sound really random. It's not a random topic, but just you <laughs> as a person. How did that become something that you felt that you were interested in writing about? No, right. I'm not a technologist. I've never even been a technology reporter. I've always done social justice stories. When my son was 11, seven years ago, he said, Mum, I want a robot slave. I said, what are you talking about, darling? And in a moment of terrible parenting, my husband and I had let him watch South Park. One of the characters, Cartman, got an Amazon Alexa and was ordering around the Alexa like it was some kind of colonial overlord. (laughs) And all of a sudden, this thing clicked in my brain, my little feminist brain, and I thought, hang on, that's a female voice chatbot and he's ordering around like it's servile, like she should be bringing him the tea and scones and doing everything for him. Yes. So that's what got me interested in it. And I looked into it more deeply and I found, gosh, automated soap dispensers that only work for white hands. Because, what? yep, this all of these soap dispensers went to Marriott hotels around the world and a Nigerian tech worker put his hands under it oh. and it didn't work and then he put a white piece of paper under it and it worked for the white piece of paper. <gasps> and he put out a tweet some years ago and it went viral. So that's the kind of stuff that's happening. The bias of the past is being embedded into the future. And that same technology that's used in soap dispensers is used in self-driving cars. So if they come up to a pedestrian crossing, they might not identify a person of colour and they might run them over, but they will identify a white person. You're joking. No. And I went so down the rabbit hole on this because these algorithms, they're deciding whether you get a job, whether you get a home loan or whether you get a ventilator in a hospital. I'm a 55-year-old woman. If I'm in a hospital in the United States because they've used Frankenstein data sets to cobble together all of this technology and it's a choice between me getting the ventilator and someone who's 30, it'll be the younger person because I'm valued as less of a person Mm. because I'm older. So this is incredible. And obviously with AI, we've only seen a tiny bit of it. And there are some positives, but obviously 
there are other forms of technology that are generated by AI that aren't great. And when I was telling someone today that I was interviewing you and that what your book is about, they said something really interesting that they use a lot of the AI for creating images and stuff like that. And they're like, it will always bring up a white person's image. You have to actually give it a prompt to say that you want an image in a different colour. And he was saying it was because a lot of the images are from Getty that it's looking through. But even that is like, why is it like that? They have totally nailed it. So what happens is... There's an app called Mid Journey that we use to create the cover of my book, Man Made. And that was 100% using artificial intelligence because the designer wanted to start a conversation about everything that you're saying, that there are these new jobs called prompt drivers, people putting words into the algorithm to come up with images, and they have to get past the bias because it defers towards... Uh, white people towards men and towards younger people. Mm. And that's how the bias is being embedded in the technology of the future. With ChatGPT, they trained it by scraping everything off the internet. Now, you know how terrible some of the stuff is on the internet, right? We all do. And they built the algorithm from that. And so if you say to ChatGPT, tell me a story about an engineer and a nurse always, 100% of the time, the engineer will be male and the nurse will be female. Mm. A friend of mine did this 10 times with ChatGPT and eventually the bot turned around to her and said, I am biased. You've made me realise I will work on it. Oh. <laughs> and I felt a bit sad for the bot then. <laughs> How interesting is that? Yeah. I, I mean, look, it's definitely not foolproof, but it's new. And the more people use it, the more it starts understanding things better. And I wonder what are the good things that you found out about AI? Oh, so many good things. It's revolutionising healthcare. There are programs now that can identify whether you will get breast cancer five years before you really? get it. Yep, if you're prone to it or predisposed to it. And that was created by a woman at MIT, one of the most fantastic AI centres in the world in Massachusetts. So there are wonderful things. And you're right, ChatGPT can be very helpful. But the key is to get us all engaged and educated about it at the moment, for all of us to play with it and for us to help train it to improve the outcomes. Mm. And, of course, we need governments to legislate and regulate and all that kind of stuff and tech companies to take ethics and bias seriously. But we can do little things in our own home. For example, Siri and Alexa are super helpful. What if we change their voices to male or gender neutral instead yeah. of female? Then it stops that stereotypical reinforcement. What if we all caught Sheba instead of, instead of Uber? And then we're supporting a female tech company instead of Silicon Valley bros with a terrible workplace culture. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. On chat GPT, I remember writing something one day and someone was standing over me and they're like, why are you saying hello and thank you. And I'm like, this because I just thought it's a nice thing to do. And even though it might not be a real person on the other end, I'm training it in a very friendly way. Because I heard stories, and I'm sure you would definitely know about this, where there were Nazi biases and just some terrible things because people, this was a while ago, it wasn't with chat GPT, were putting in really awful things to the bot to make it think that these horrible things that had happened were good or swear words and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I write a chapter about that in my book because that was when a lot of us became aware of what's called machine learning. Yes. And it was a tweet bot called Tay. 
and they Microsoft introduced this yeah. tweet bot and said this is a millennial minded AI agent, whatever that means. And within 24 hours, young Tay became a neo Nazi mm. who said feminism is cancer. And so they completely deleted Tay. But that goes to explain machine learning. The bot went in there and learned from all the trolls on Twitter and thought, this is the way I should be behaving. Mm. So I love what you're doing. I always say to my friends and, and our teens, be nice to the robots because when there's yes. the uprising, they might spare you. Well, that's it, exactly. <laughs> there was an interesting thing that you write in your book. You said, AI will be better equipped than humans to write a school essay by 2026, work in retail by 2031, write a best-selling book by 2049, and this one is unbelievable, perform surgery by 2053. Yeah, definitely, because the technology is improving exponentially. And while we all had our eyes on COVID-19 during the pandemic, this technology was replicating and improving almost like, you know, Skynet or Terminator or something. And that quote was taken from one of the experts in the field. And because I'm a journalist, not an expert... I pick the brains of everyone around the world and that's what they say. Even the World Health Organisation and um, all of the global bodies are talking about that as being a huge issue. I mean, I don't want to get too dark, but even Elon Musk is saying that AI is a greater threat to humanity than things like climate change. So we are living at a tipping point. We're living through the fourth industrial revolution, but I'm a glass half full kind of gal. I think there will be job losses, but there will also be job creation. And we've got to get onto this now. Mm. So we're in control of the technology instead of it being in control of us. You write this, you say AI may eliminate 85 million jobs, but it will create 97 million new ones by 2025. So how would that work? So there will be new jobs created. The problem is that a lot of them will be insecure jobs, like jobs in the gig economy, speaking of Uber drivers before. A lot of them will exacerbate the differences between rich and poor. So what you see with the development of AI is a lot of the companies are headquartered in wealthy countries and wealthy cities. And a lot of the grunt work, for example, labelling pornographic images, is being done effectively in sweatshops in places like Bangladesh. So you see this sort of neo-colonialism going on, which is extremely problematic. But again, during times of great disruption in society, there are also opportunities. We've just got to get on top of it, use the AI for good and come up with strategies to mitigate its worst impacts. That's very useful information. I wonder even now with that chat GPT, a lot of copywriters, I think, have lost jobs because what they were paying a lot of people to do. They're like, well, really, if we get someone junior to type in prompts, we're kind of getting the same stuff and you just rejig it a little bit. That's exactly right. And there's a lot of people in generally lower paid jobs in society who are going to lose their their roles, like you were saying, cashiers. Yeah. And a lot of the global bodies are saying the people who are going to lose their jobs are the ones in the poorer countries and also women. Mm. And so we see that structural discrimination happening again in the future. So tell me about the biases and why that became such a big thing in AI. It happens initially with the data sets because they scrape them from the internet. Uh, In fact, uh, one of the experts, Dr Nikki Ringland in Australia, explained it to me really beautifully. She said, do you realise that the biggest repositories of data sets in the world 
the texts, so all the words, are from the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s. So similar to the stories we were talking about earlier about workplace culture back in that time, every doctor is a male and every nurse is a female from back in that time, from what's been written. And so all of those biases are put into the algorithm And then the algorithm, the baby bias, becomes a troublesome teenager through machine learning. And I liken it in the book to white supremacists going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory websites. The machines (laughs) learn that if a doctor is a male, that's what it's learned, that's what it's been trained on, then they believe the doctor should always be male in the future. So it exacerbates and heightens and deepens that existing bias. So we're kind of putting the past into the future and then wondering why we're going backwards Mm. as a society. (laughs) Out of all the information that you've learnt on the journey of writing this book, I wonder for you what you think is the best thing that people should know to be able to live in a world with AI, which is inevitable, but being one that they're not fearful of and kind of work in harmony almost with it. Yeah, that's right. The machines and the humans have to work together to create a fairer, more equitable, happier society for everyone, Mm. robots and humans alike. What I'd love people to know is that when we have more inclusion and diversity, things work better. I mean, we know that companies are more lucrative when their boards have more diversity and inclusion. But with artificial intelligence, it's things like smart homes A lot of them now are locking people with disabilities inside because they haven't been designed from the get-go with people with disabilities Mm. in mind. So it's all about getting the best brains at the table to create the best technology that's good for the future of humanity. It's funny that with technology, you know, even today I said to you, we've got these beautiful new studios and they're so great, but when something breaks down, it is so hard (laughs) to fix it. And that you need like 10 people to come and it's like, what button do I press? And, you know, it's funny, my parents in their house, they got something where it's all digital. But again, when son of my mum called me a few weeks ago, she's like, I can't get the car out of the garage. <laughs> because it's not like the olden days where you just press a button or you've got a key or something like that. It's all digital. And That's so right. It's like they need to get someone to come out to like fix everything. So it's great to be in that era, but sometimes the old school way can almost <laughs> be a little bit easier. That's right. For example, I love my robot vacuum cleaner yes. at home. And that one of the rare AI creations that had a woman involved, uh, Helen Griner. She's a fantastic woman in tech. And all these people, when it first came out, there were problems with it. And one woman said the iRobot went through her dog's poo <gasps> and traced a Jackson Pollock poop painting on her floor. Oh my Another God. one said it ran over chalk and it created this chalk outline <laughs> like someone had died in her house while she was out of work. Oh, so funny. they're wonderful. But when they go wrong, they go wrong. They badly. go wrong. I wonder, Tracy, for you, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? Oh, the best advice I've ever been given is to be yourself. Mm. Because particularly when you're younger, you look at people on television, like I looked at Yarn Event, and you think, I want to be that person. And I think I spent years putting on a little bit of um, a false face, pretending to be somebody else, pretending to be, you know, the credible newsreader with gravitas when I was just a young woman trying to work out who I was. So I would say to anyone who's still trying to find their place in the workplace, their brand, their true self, 
as soon as you drop that and become your authentic self, which is what I did when I finished up at Network 10 and sued the network and started a conversation about maternity discrimination, I thought that was the end of my career. But it actually was the start of my career, you know, because I was being truly myself. And people were like, oh, she's got a personality. That's interesting. It's a bit unique. It's a bit quirky, but we like that. We like to see your true self. It's interesting, you know, I always talk about on the podcast being your authentic self and how that with disease, a lot of the doctors and psychologists, you know, very well-renowned ones that I've interviewed, they say one of the biggest drivers of disease is not being authentic. Bronnie Ware, who wrote The um, Regrets of the Dying, said that people on the deathbed, their biggest regret was I didn't get to be my authentic self. I was who my husband wanted to be. I was who my parents wanted to be. All I wanted to be is a musician and I did law because I got the marks and I didn't want to upset my parents. And a lot of that creates disease. If it's Mm. never dealt with, it's a form of trauma. So I think that's such beautiful advice. Isn't that sad that people are on their deathbed saying that? And often it does take something that happens to you in life, a workplace or personal trauma, for you to think, oh, gosh, maybe I should be my authentic self now. So in a way, our traumas during a lifetime can sometimes be be the catalyst or the blessing Mm. because... When I finished up at Network 10, I thought, gosh, I've only just ever been a TV journalist and newsreader. I don't know how to do anything else. And then I started, I did a little list. What did I used to like to do as a kid? Because I think that shows your true self before adulthood puts those layers of bullshit on top of you. I hope I'm allowed to say bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what I loved doing as a kid was writing. I sat there like a nerd in my bedroom writing poetry and writing short stories, which took me to writing those two books. So if anyone's listening who's trying to find themselves, think about what you loved as a kid. Mm. It It unlocks something in your brain. Absolutely. What is your greatest hope for society today? Oh, my greatest hope for society is to realise that love and compassion and kindness are more important than the profit motive. Mm. You know, I see that in teenagers, you know, the kids and their friends, they're also driven by money. And that's because we're surrounded by conversations about that. You know, we live in a city, it's an expensive city, so there's a lot of talk about, oh, am I ever going to get a house? You know, that kind of stuff. Whereas if we really pair it back, that doesn't make you happy. What makes you happy is being your authentic self and having compassion and kindness in your day-to-day interactions at home and in the workplace. Mm. Tracy, what do you wish for yourself? Oh, I wish. Look, I had long COVID last year and I was bedridden or in a wheelchair for an entire year. And so my personal wish for, and I know it's a lot worse for for other people, particularly who don't have a support network around them or who are young, you know, in the prime of their lives Mm. and they're struck down by this chronic illness. It's just devastating. But my wish for myself is to get my health back. Because when you live with a chronic illness, you really do realise that the most important thing is your health. Nothing yes. else matters. It's so true. So I hope to get to the stage where I'm strong enough to be able to walk the dog for 15 minutes. That is my dream. Oh, <laughs> that's beautiful. Do you have a favourite saying or prayer or mantra? <laughs> It used to be go hard or go home when I was younger because I was very, very career-driven and very ambitious and stuff. And now it's just treat others the way you would hope to be treated yourself Mm. because don't we all want that? And there's so much, gosh, I see so much aggro in the streets these days. So many wounded people wounding other people. That's it, hurt people hurt people. Mm. And so I really try to 
take a deep breath if I get annoyed about something and think, hang on, this person's just doing their job. Mm. Take a deep breath, be kind. And I think if we can all do that every day, the world would be a much nicer place. Absolutely. What is a life of greatness to you? Oh, look, a life of greatness is to live with authenticity, with love and surrounded by the people who you support and they lift you up. Because when you find that support crew, that is absolutely priceless. It's life-changing. Tracy Spicer, thank you so much for putting yourself on a limb on so many occasions in your life to stand up for different people of for all walks of life, different genders, different races. It's not easy to do something like that and it takes a lot of courage. So thank you for your book and thank you for the conversation today. Oh, thank you. It's been a beautiful conversation. You're a wonderful soul. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.